J.D. Hogue offers a rare combination of skills as he combines music therapy and statistics. He is a statistician and board-certified music therapist with over 10 years experience combining data analysis, research, and program evaluation. J.D. has a Master of Science degree in Quantitative Psychology and another Master of Music degree in Music Therapy from Illinois State University and has studied abroad in France and New Zealand. He edits for a peer-reviewed journal and has published in peer-reviewed journals such as Psychology of Music, Journal of Social Psychology, and Intersection. He was also adjunct faculty and the assessment coordinator for Missouri Southern State University and bridges the clinical and statistical worlds to help both data and people tell their stories. For music therapy, he treated patients who have learning disabilities and or are on the autism spectrum through private practice. What a great addition to the AVP season four. Let's jump in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Able Voice podcast with Haley and Kim. Hello. Today we are so excited to be joined by a special guest who has a wealth of knowledge in not only music therapy, but also some of the exciting ways that we can include data analysis, program evaluation, and statistics into this world of music therapy. So we're so excited to welcome JD to the podcast today. Thank you. It's 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 exciting to be here. I'm I'm so happy you allowed me to be on this podcast. Yeah, we can't wait to jump into this conversation and reading all of the information that you gave to us about yourself and the work that you do. I think this is an important conversation um, around some of the ways that other people can maybe see themselves practicing and maybe they didn't know that they could combine these two um, disciplines. And so we're really excited to see how that is true for you and your practice. But what we always like to do just to start off is to get to know our guests just a little bit more. And so our audience knows a little bit about you. Uh, We ask to get you just to share a little bit about your journey to becoming a practicing music therapist? It's been a wild ride before becoming an MTBC and even after uh, getting that certification. I I wanted to be a music therapist since high school. I even wrote a paper on it as an English paper. And... I, like I went through the research and I, I talked all about how you can use music to affect different situations. And, but the school I went to for undergrad didn't have a music therapy degree. So I started out as a music major, didn't like the environment, went to a psychology major, thought I was just done with the music, whole music therapy idea and ended up going to a, a school for quantitative psychology and that school happened to have a music therapy program in the School of Music. 
So I thought, well, I'll just take some extra music therapy classes as electives on the side. They liked me. I liked it. Um, so I finished my quantitative psychology degree uh, for the master's and then finished a music master's in music and music therapy degree at the same school. <laughs> I was in school for like five years as a, as a grad student. It was um, it was exhausting. I was I was done. I was done, flat out done by the end of the of that whole five years. But um did my internship in for autism and learning disabilities and then went to work at, at a university in Missouri where I uh did program evaluation, but also taught some classes on the side. Uh, all of this while I was saving up money to take the board certification test. <laughs> um but yeah, I taught some like an intro to music therapy class. I taught uh, just some general psych classes. I even taught a business stats course while I was there. So, and then I and some research classes, uh, like how to engage in research and de- develop a program, um, and all of that. And then I even and I started a side business so that I could do some music therapy, where I had one music therapy client for autism and learning disabilities. Then I scrapped all of that and went to work at Creative Forces um, in Washington D.C. And they're in 13 different sites across the nation and treat veterans and service members who have TBI and PTSD. Where I wasn't a music therapist, I focused on the statistics research and program evaluation side of things, but used it, used my music therapy perspective to help them. And now I'm still doing that, but I, I'm hoping to engage more with the, the, the music therapy side of things. And now I'm, I'm treating narcissistic abuse in, in patients. So <laughs> it's a wild ride and it comes full circle. And everything gets it gets integrated at some point. Wild ride for sure. That's a cool story that you you kind of had shifted paths to try something to go more of the psych route, and then just happened to to be at that space where you're back into the music therapy world. The universe is like, nah, JD, you're coming. <laughs> you're coming <over." laughs> I know it's like I wanted it, and I and it's kind of like you you give up something, and then it comes back to you. Um, so it, I guess it was just meant to be because that was the only school grad school that I got accepted to. So you just never know what the universe is going to throw at you. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the boomerang effect, right? Yeah. (laughs) You let it go and it comes back. (laughs) We've spoken with several music therapists who have kind of this... well, similarities in the path in that, you know, they, they diverge and go somewhere else and then come back and, you know what a wealth of knowledge you have in your toolkit now from such a different perspective, which we will absolutely be touching on in just a little bit. With that, I I always think that diversity is how you grow as, as, as a group, Mm -hmm. you need that diversity to, um, like as a species, that's how we survive as a species. That's how we grow as individuals, bring in new information so that we can assimilate it and accommodate it. And so that it's always exciting to hear when people go out and get something other than the music therapy degree, because they, they can incorporate both. And you have these two sides of you that can talk to both sides. So like you go in with a, a social work degree, you can talk to social workers in their language. And then they can understand you better. And it, it's an easier doorway to get in music therapy into the social work language. That's just an example. Yeah, yeah. One of many examples, so much that comes out of that. And just the perspectives that we hold and 
problem solving that comes to mind when we're not just in one one mindset. So before we um, pick your brain about all the really cool things that you do, um, we're recently we've been asking um, some of our guests to bring in this music piece because as music therapists and as you know inherently musical beings, we have these connections to music um, that may or may not differ from how we use it clinically. We're curious to find out for you, is there an important song or a meaningful song um, on your playlist right now? And can you share a little bit about that? So many, and most of them are from Jason Mraz. <laughs> yes! <laughs> he, I've, I've seen him in concert um, like twice now, maybe three times. Um, and it just, he blows me away every time. But he has a, a song called Have It All. And uh, I love it because it's it's a meditation set to song, set to lyrics, set to melody. Um, it is actually the loving kindness meditation musically, and he wrote it with help from Tibetan monks, Tibetan Buddhist monks. So you bring in these elements of meditation and peace and joy. And it's I, I use it personally, and I use it in my sessions as a meditation song, just because it, it helps people um, bring in that loving kindness mindset. Oh my goodness, I haven't heard that song before, but I'm gonna go and look it up after this, and Definitely. maybe use it to unwind at the end of a busy day. <laughs> would you say it's something that would ground you more? Or is it something that can um, be um, used in a mindful practice to get your day going? Both. Because, uh, oh, take the lyrics. It's, may you have auspiciousness and causes of success. May you have the confidence to always be your best. It, it's it's very much you telling yourself that, that you can be the best that you are. And, but you can flip it around and tell it and think of if somebody's irritating, you flip it around and say, no, this ir- this person who's irritating me, I wish you the best. I wish you auspiciousness and causes of success. I love that. Versatile, but like really hones into what you need in that moment of just like either whether it is grounding or whether it is kind of that like self-love or <laughs> grounding patience when you're trying to find that grace. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, I only know the song vaguely, but I think I've only heard it once or twice. But I love Jason Mraz, and I didn't know that um, there was collaboration like that. That's a really cool way to go about um, creation like that, especially for this type of a song. And I I like to bring in um, Buddhist elements to to therapy. Well, just my whole mindset's really kind of based around. Taoist principles. So having that tied in um, really flows well with with everything that I do, especially and just not just clinically, but but my life in general. Speaking about things that like have this weave effect throughout your practice and within your life, I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the connection that you have. Um, as a music therapist to statistics and how that complements your work. Sure. Yeah. When we talked about having the two different mindsets of social works versus music therapy um, and how you can use both of those to talk to other people, that is what I try to do with statistics and music therapy. Uh, um, Statistics is very much a, a left brain activity. Um, 
where it's very logical, very creative. Uh, sorry, not creative. Very logical, very structured. Um, and um, and music therapy is also often very emotional, heartfelt, creative, um, left brain. And the merging the two, you're able to speak to the logical people who need that that graphic visual to say, oh, you're making progress. This is amazing. I can see that in the numbers. But you can address the emotional component of the clients and say, uh, this is how I feel. This is how I can express myself with the music. Um, but the, the data can also be very heartfelt as well, because you can have quantitative data, which would be the logical, but you can have the qualitative data, which would be the the heartfelt um, uh, and, and creative side of things, because it's people telling their stories in their own words. So you can use the data both ways to show how effective music therapy is or not effective. Sometimes we're just, we don't have the right client and it's not the right fit. So we're not being effective and the data will, the data will bring that out as much as we don't like it, <laughs> it. The data will reflect what you give it. And when you look at the data, you have to be open and honest and reflective rather than saying, this doesn't fit my perspective. I'm not going to use it. I, I see the importance of both. In, in the work that we do, I think that um, there's this there's this line or continuum that music therapy sits on or music therapists can sit on depending on their school of thought and the way that they choose to practice is I know that there are a lot of music therapists who will be like really, really heavily involved in research and doing that heavily like qualitative and quantitative, like depending on what their, their research product is about. Um, but then you have the influx of also music therapists who tend to steer away from that kind of scientific world of data and move toward kind of that more human connection, building on, you know, the, our innate um, experience with the music and our ability to be musical beings, uh, without a necessary, uh, without a concentration in finding hardcore data to validate what it is that you're doing in the experience. What do you feel about those two schools of, of, of thought at the extremes? <laughs> Speaking of Jason Mraz songs, he has a song called everything is sound. And, and if you if you think that everything is sound, our, our voices, our music, the way like even our heartbeat is sound, we're all vibrational beings. Um, if everything is sound and everything is vibration, everything is math. So the dichotomy to me of of hard math versus uh, the more emotional aspect, the more personal aspect, it doesn't make sense to me because everything is data, everything is numbers. So, uh, so just talking to people and um, writing down what they say to get their personal experience—that is data. That that is something you can take and write it down and count it and use that to show other people what you're doing. 
and you can look at it and do a qualitative analysis on it. I like what you said about like everything is math. For me, who is somebody who is good at math, but really hated it throughout school. (laughs) I like, I was somebody who did, um, like I was put in the highest math class and then electively throughout high school and university decided to engage less and less with that world. But I have a strong value for data collection and being able to correlate what it is that I'm doing to, you know, something that can be understood by the masses. (laughs) What we do in music therapy, or a lot of the music therapy communities, is have this passion for advocacy. And in order to get other people to understand what we do, I think we have to speak their language in some way. And we had the conversation about this already is, you know, how can we bridge that gap of understanding between disciplines? And um, I think that's why I'm I'm really uh, fond of practicing neurologic music therapy, because it is kind of that, that bridge between the two worlds without me having to get into all the become a, a how do you say a, a, a mathematician a staff what's I can't even print a static I can't say it <laughs> but that's what that's where I I fall in the line I really value the people that do have that skill set and are really keen on doing this kind of work and drawing it back to like how it relates to our human experience and how that um, that part of our understanding or part of our um, brain function can relate to the way that we connect with each other as humans. Right. And what's really brilliant about, about the, uh, the graphs and the figures that you can make numbers with is you show it to somebody and they shut up. <laughs> It's my it's my favorite part of my job. I, I can show somebody a figure, they stop talking. That gives me a chance to tell the story about what the numbers say, how we got the numbers, what's happening with the numbers, what's happening in the back end that you don't see, why we're getting those numbers. They become receptive so that you can become expressive. It's instinctual. And I mean, it happens to me too. Like I see a graph and suddenly I have to just shut up and start start looking at it and yeah. start asking questions. But it gives you a, a doorway to start talking about what you're doing. And it gives it, it gives people a visual to latch on to to say, oh yeah, I can see how you're doing it and why you're doing it. And you're telling me that this is important and there are the numbers to back it up. I really like that approach. And, you know, I'm thinking about the, you know, the advocacy moments that I have in a day. And um, so often I start with the qualitative because I'm a storyteller and that's what I know. And sometimes it's really effective um, if you're talking to the right person. And especially if they, you know, can get to come and see a little bit of what you're doing or they can visualize it. Um, But also, and I've talked about this um, previously on the podcast, but I feel like we have such an inherent connection to music that sometimes when I go to talk about music therapy, the other person is just so eager to connect that they're like, oh yeah, music's my therapy. I love this. This is what I do. I can totally see that. 
And then I'm not getting quite as much of a window to actually explain what music therapy is, but that concept of, oh, look at what's happening in our, um, like in the data and then letting them absorb that while I get to do the storytelling in, in tandem. Like that's such a cool approach to give both that quantitative and qualitative um, side. Telling your story in their words, the figures will help you do that because yeah. there's very few words in the figure. So they're looking at the figure and thinking in their words about what it means so that they can re- receive it. But I want to harp on the the qualitative, um, the like the personal stories that you're, you're using to express. I uh, helped write a chapter in a book on music therapy in the military populations. And in that chapter, we, we talked about um, how research has progressed in the military populations uh, for music therapy specifically. One of the, the, it's, it's interesting. It's bizarre. It's sad at the same time, but uh, since we've been doing research for this, we've always been saying that we need more research. <laughs> it's been decades and we're still saying that we need more research. And part of that is just, just the research process. Like we always have questions, um, but uh, that's where you get, that's where we need both the qualitative and quantitative research. We need mixed methods research in this population because it's a, if you ever work with the military population, they're very, it's a very close knit population and they listen to themselves more than they listen to outside people. So bringing in qualitative information, bringing in the patient's experiences in their own words will help bring across better to other military populations about why it's important, what you get out of it, how it works, much better than we can as outside entities will ever do. As you were saying that, I'm reflecting on my experience within um, corrections for music therapy and very much the same thing, right? um, And I think it comes back to what you were saying of how we can speak other people's languages and um, allowing ourselves to... um, or them to interpret within their own frame and with what they're seeing in the figures, but also in those qualitative um, storytelling opportunities. With all of this data, there's a lot of questions and, and there's a lot of information that we can gain from it, depending on the questions that we're asking and what we're looking at. Um, my head's kind of reeling every time we talk about research or, or the data. But so thinking of that data in, in relation to program evaluation or evaluating the work that we're doing. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what the benefits of actually evaluating program, or geez, can you talk to us a bit about those benefits of program evaluation or, or what that um, could bring about? Sure. There's there's often a fine line between research and program evaluation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they gets muddy, it gets blurry. Um, my kind of rule of thumb is research is more intentional and it can be it can be designed in a certain way doesn't have to be but it can um program evaluation i see as something that's more naturalistic it's it's explaining what you're doing throughout the day and why so that you can put it together and say we sh- and see the patterns and say we should be doing more of this or we should be doing less of this so part of program evaluation is just the, raw numbers of how many patients you see in a day or how much time you're spending per patient or um, like how much time you're spending in non-direct patient care or or 
um, community engagement or just like scheduling, like how much time you spend in scheduling. So you can look back at it at the end of the day and say, I, I'm spending way too many, way too much time on phone calls to patients and uh, I can hire someone to do this for me. I don't need to do it so I can spend more time with the patients or I'm spending way too much time documenting. Maybe I need a templated note so that I can formalize everything and, and spend less time documenting, but also know what I'm looking for when I'm documenting. So it's not, I'm not having to rewrite it every time. So it, it helps you become more, more efficient in ways that are more beneficial for you. But that, that's just the, like the, more the input side of things. Um, you could also track patient outcomes with program evaluation to say, oh, everyone working on executive functioning isn't doing as well as people who are working on um, physical pain. So maybe I personally need some more training on executive functioning to to help me better st- treat these patients. Yeah, so it, it it's giving you those um, or highlighting those areas that we can either do less or do more. So either if there's gaps in knowledge or if there's room for growth or room for um, you know exploring different approaches to right, it. Right, right. The data are a mirror. Um, just okay. like the, the Buddhist principle that the, the world is a mirror, life is a mirror, the, the data are a mirror. What you put in is what you're going to get back. That's a new way of, of thinking about program evaluation for me in terms of what my experience has been around it, which um, I really enjoy the picture of um, what you put in is what you get out of it. and being more intentional, I suppose, about uh, looking at the pieces of the puzzle and making sure that every piece has is, is efficient and has a purpose um, and has a place to operate in its best form. And so I think that's really interesting as most or a lot of music therapists after they finish school, a lot of music therapists, I'd say, go into private practice mm-hmm. more often than not. Um, and and even if they are a music therapist that is working as part of a collaborative or part of a team um, in, a, in a practice, uh, I think it would apply. They're part of that puzzle piece. They're, they're part of that puzzle. They're part of that working engine. Um, but in private practice, this isn't necessarily a skill that was taught when we were, right. you know, <laughs> obtaining our music therapy degree. Um, you know, there aren't many like business courses that help us to sit down and and intentionally uh, identify what is going to keep this train running, what is going to keep this engine going. Mm-hmm. I can do my job as a music therapist and that's one part of it but how do we make that sustainable is kind of what i'm hearing is all of these program evaluation um pieces would help in in terms of making something more sustainable right and i've always said the best measures are the ones that you build in throughout the day it's the ones that you're already doing so just track it if you're already writing notes make the notes part of your uh, program evaluation 
measures. If you need to track the number of patients you see, make timesheets that are are part of your daily work. And, and you can combine the two. You can make the time you spend seeing patients and the patient outcomes part of your part of the whole note template so you can roll it up all together with the other patients that you see and and look at all of the data all at once. So it's it's not as difficult as people seem make it seem. You have to you have to make those tools and that can where thing be th- where things get difficult, but once you have them built, it, it you can just make it part of your entire workflow and it's embedded in the workflow so it's not any additional work. Yeah, that's what I was That's exactly what I was going to ask you is that in a field that's so specialized, like music therapy, uh, I haven't come across a program evaluation tool that I really loved or that's like designed specifically for music therapy work um, Mm -hmm. or private practice and and contracting and all of that kind of thing. And and the type of business that we have at Synergy is definitely a work in progress. And we've had to create (laughs) our own kind of templates and trial and error. But I, yeah, I, I was going to ask if there are any program evaluation tools out there that music therapists can access or if that's something that you provide as part of your services that I can help if anyone would like I can help them build their own so that it's 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 designed specifically what they're doing but if anybody wants just an example I have a um I have a YouTube video where I built it within Excel so it's not an expensive program or anything like that but I built a, a a model for one that lets you track time you're spending per patient and outcomes for those patients. And it's all built into one Excel file. So um, that can be just something to get you started to get some ideas flowing. And we'll link that um, YouTube video in the show notes of this episode. I want to circle back to this piece about music that we talked about earlier because I saw the title of a contribution you made to an article titled So Sad and So and Slow. So why can't I turn off the radio? I can't say it without singing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want you to tell us a little bit about your contribution. What was that? What did that involve and and how was that process uh, for you? Sure. Yeah, I was um, primary author on that. So I, I sent out the survey, I did the analyses, I wrote up the paper. Um, and I found that the more depressed you are, the more you like sad songs. But it's different between men and women. So both men and women like sad songs the more they're depressed, but men tend to like it more when they're highly depressed than women. So this like, they not just catch up to women, but they surpass women. And men overall liked uh, depressed songs. The more you can put yourself into the song, like that's called absorption, the more you liked the sad song and, and happy songs as well. For men and women, it, that stayed the same. As your absorption into the song increased, women stayed the same for liking the song. But men were the more they could put themselves into the song, um, the more they liked the sad song. They they were lower than women than brought themselves up. So it, so it was 
it was really fascinating to to find this out because men and women tend to process depression differently. Men tend to go inward and they start to isolate and they start to seek outside outside stimuli. So they turn to drugs, sex, alcohol, rock and roll <laughs> um, to to help them process that that grief and that loneliness and that depression because they don't it's almost like as a man you you don't want to burden someone you're saying i should be able to handle this i can't i can't express my emotions to other people because that's weakness women on the other hand they have a social support they have an outside group that they can talk to and get the support that they need so that they can process that that depression so they don't need the outside stimuli to help them process it because they already have it. So that's that's one view of that. There's also this uh, self-verification theory saying that you like things that match your current worldview. So if you're sad, you like things that are sad because you're saying, oh, this gets me. I agree with this. And that, and that takes us to it's almost like the ISO principle. It's like you match the patient where they are because that's where you're going to get that engagement. So when when you have a depressed patient, you want to start with the depressed songs because that's where they're going to connect. So I was recently having a conversation with a group about this who had a question about the kinds of music that they should be listening to um, and if they were feeling down, if they were feeling anxious. Because in this particular group, they were um, they are cancer. Um, going through cancer treatments and and or coming out the other end as a cancer survivor and all of the ups and downs that go with that journey. And so we were talking about anxiety, we were talking about stressors and flight or flight responses. And they had a question about the kinds of music that they should be listening to if they feel down. And um the clinical psychologist who I was working with pointed to me as the music therapist in the room (laughs) (laughs) and basically was like, I've always wondered if, you know, when you're feeling down, if you should just put on a happy song, people always say, you know, put on a happy song if you're feeling down and it'll it'll lift your spirits. And I'm sure in some cases that's true. Um, But also for some people, that could be overstimulation, um, you know, of of emotions Mm -hmm. when you are trying to just automatically flip from one to the other. You're you're tricking your brain for a minute, but how long does that last? Right. And you're not giving the patient uh, a chance to express that emotion that they're experiencing. You're not giving them a chance to process um, well, process the emotions, but process any grief or trauma that is related to that. Um, so so it, it's almost like you're hindering your ability to be a therapist by not matching their mood. So mm-hmm. you don't want to stay there. That's the thing. You don't want to stay in the sad songs. Yeah. You want to do the isopropyl. Move through way. it. Move yeah. them to the happy songs. But more likely than not, if if they're sad and you bring in a happy song, they're just going to reject the happy song, and you're you've lost you've lost confidence in the patient, and you've lost your ability to connect with that patient. Um, I'm uh, it, this wasn't in therapy, but I, my nephew was trying to work on just a 
project for school, like a presentation. And um, I put on just some relaxing music for him to just to just to put on something in the background. But he has he has ADD. And he was he he literally told me, stop the music. It's trash. (laughs) And I'm like, the song isn't trash. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Um, But it was slower and it was more peaceful. But he was trying to focus and he had ADD. So he needed something more repetitive, something faster, something that could engage the brain more. And once I put it, it was like Pokemon music I put on. <laughs> and once I put on that, he was able to focus. He got it done. It was good. And everything it, everything was great. He ended up getting 100% on that, that presentation. Um, so my point with that is I played a song that didn't meet him for what his needs or where he was at. And he, it, it was hurting him. It was, he was rejecting it. And then I put it, I put a song that met his needs and where he was at and he, he flourished. I love that story. I think that just, it, it, you could see that all over music therapy. If you ask any music therapist about the ISO principle and why that is effective with within our work. Um, and I think what, as it relates to sadness or depression, specifically, I think it's just uncomfortable sometimes for people to, to start in that place or, or, you know, for other people to also be in community with somebody when they're feeling sad. So, you know, we understand as therapists, but if there are other people in the room who are also um, trying to support this person from an outside perspective, it could be their initial reaction to be like, oh, let's just change the mood. Let's, you know, let's, they're feeling sad. Let's do something happy. But that's our chance to advocate because we've seen this work time and time again of meeting that person to feel validated in their response uh, because maybe they don't get a chance to express the way that they're feeling in other settings. Right. And and that sad, so what I'm saying is that sad song will help them express themselves. It will help connect with them so that they're not feeling so isolated and alone. They're saying, no, this this thing gets it. I am with this thing and I am not alone. <laughs> yeah. And and exactly like you were showing in in that article of, you know, how we connect to those things or for whatever theory you want to go by, there is some connection if we are in a um, a more challenging state, if we're in a state of depression or a state of anger, finding lyrics or energy within the music that can validate us is so important. And um, I think that's one of the, you know, full circle moments of what our conversation is of how, what we're learning in the data, what we're seeing in the patterns and the trends can help to inform, um, well, how we practice, but also how we walk through the world and how we see that. And, um, to your point, Haley, I think that's a really important, um, concept of, of how we sit with quote unquote challenging emotions. Um, because yeah, it's, it's something that we perhaps see a little bit more, um, in men, of course, as a generalization, that that inward turn. But I think it's a, a whole society thing of, especially in certain settings, you know, with, with um, I often see it a lot with kids or with um, within dementia care of, oh, we'll just sing something happy, sing something else. And you're right. We're missing that opportunity to connect. We're missing that opportunity to um, be in relationship and be in that present moment. And yeah, and then they either reject the song or 
we've missed an opportunity for them to feel brave enough to go there in the future. Right. And so many times someone's um, someone's come to me and they they just start crying for X, Y, Z reasons. Um, what, uh, what I love to do in that space is let them cry. I don't try to fix it. I don't, I don't like, I just let them do it. But I fill up the space with a song that I know they're going to like, that I know they're going to connect with. It's probably a sad song. Um, but it gives them that five minutes to cry and let it out and emotionally regulate. And then I can bring in the words of that song to help them express what they need in the moment. It's, and if I if I'd have picked a happy song, it, they wouldn't have connected with it, with it. They wouldn't have get, gotten the words that they needed to express themselves. Um, there's there's therapeutic value in in sad songs in sadness. If you've ever seen Inside Out, it, it, you like that's the message of Inside Out. <laughs> so to kind of bring it back full circle, we're talking about this because I was able to get data from a survey to to analyze it and look at it and and get the figures and charts so that that we can communicate what it's saying so that we can interpret it and how we need to do that as music therapists. So data are incredibly important. They don't say everything. You're never going to get the full story, but they do help you get something visual to talk about what you need moving forward. And if you're billing insurance, if you're accredited in private practice business, um, if even if you're not and you want to know how you're being effective as a therapist for your patients, um, the data will help you do that. Or if you're a program um if you're a program manager and you have a bunch of music therapists under you, you need to be able to know who's doing a lot of therapy, who's doing little therapy. You need to be able to adjust. So taking data will help you do all of that it's so you can get a big, bigger picture of what's happening. And, and, and use that data to advocate for yourself, advocate for your needs, advocate for music therapy as a whole. I've taken note templates that I've, I've built and taking them to conference presentations and said, these are this is data that and information from note templates and we're showing that music therapy is effective. Yeah, I, I love that thread of advocacy as well as the idea of being able to identify what you need. Um, and in that vein, I wonder if there are things that you can identify as um, a hope for you for the future of this field of this profession i feel like we're moving into a more technological world um more more not just tech but more science and data and um a need to advocate for ourselves as a society um so data are what we're going to need to help us be that technological society, be that data-driven society. It's my hope to help music therapists, creative art therapists as a whole, um, collect that data so that they can better advocate for their needs. And that's um, that's what my music, th- that's what my YouTube channel is designed for. It's designed to take the research that we're using and say this is what we're seeing in the research about how effective we're being. It's uh, designed to um, help 
build tools so that we can start collecting those tools. Because if you're not if you're not collecting the data now, you're gonna be sorry in about five years because you're you're gonna wish that you had it. I'm so glad that you add that added that last piece just for for myself <laughs> because <laughs> the amount of times I can't tell you the amount of times that I've gone through a phase in my life or a journey in my life, even just personally. And I'm like, Oh, why didn't I track how many times I did that or how many cool conversations? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Or even, um, even if you're moving from job to job, having those data to say, I treated X number of patients and this is like, and 90% of them saw improvements that that's a good tool for you to advocate, to say, this is why I need higher pay. Yes. And this is why you should hire me. There's the the use case for data is unlimited because what you can collect is not limited. Goodness. I have really appreciated your um your take on all of this and your your vision on um or your perspective, sorry, on that connection of statistics and music therapy and just statistics as a whole. Um, because as we mentioned a couple times throughout, you know, it, numbers can be scary. The, the, the be. data can be um, overwhelming to people sometimes. And I feel like you've done such a beautiful job of just painting it as, um, you know, as, that, as, a, as another relationship with that we build. More information that we're gathering, things, this little statistic buddy that's coming along our journey too and helping to advocate for what we do and what we see in the world and what we need and so I just uh, thank you so much for sharing this perspective. I know that there are going to be um, lots of applications of what you've shared and hopeful that a lot of our audience can take away, um, you know, some of some of that great um, knowledge and also just that feeling of, you know, how can we use the numbers? How can we use that data? I'm glad we recorded this, <laughs> this conversation for all of our users to be able to go back and listen to all of these nuggets that you have um, so graciously shared with us today. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there is anybody that wants to get in contact with you and to learn a little bit more about what you do, how can they get in touch? Sure. Um, the best way is through email. So that's hogue, M-T, H-O-G-U-E, M as in Mary, T as in Todd, at gmail.com. Um, I, uh, you can text me. It's 870-351-1616. I, I ask people not to call first because there's so many scammers. I'm going to miss you. Um, so <laughs> texting me is great. But email is, is best just initially. And then I, I do post what I can when I can on, on YouTube. So you can check anything on that. It, I go through 20 articles per, per video. So it, it takes me a bit to post, but I, I, I do try to post regularly. Awesome. And do you have um, a website or social media? I, I do have a website. It's uh, J as in uh, yeah, J as in Jason, <laughs> D as in David, hogue.weebly.com. Um, so you can see examples of my work on, on that website. It's some, and some articles I published, I have uh, just music therapy. I have just statistics. And then I have a side for statistics and music therapy. And I'm, I'm trying to post more to TikTok recently. So that's hogue MTSC. Uh, NTSNC. 
Beautiful. Yeah. Well, we will definitely share links to all of that so people can come and continue the conversations uh, and learn even more about the work that you've done and the world of stats and music therapy collide. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thanks for sharing all that. Thanks again so much for for being here, JD. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you and to, um, you know, get an inside view of your perspective on the field and the world. And thank you for listening. It's been an honor. Listening to the Able Voice Podcast. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Synergy Music Therapy. You can also find links to our most recent and top-rated episodes on our website at www.synergymusictherapy.com.